Hello and welcome to the Next Iteration podcast, where we interview some of the most innovative thinkers, you know, in tech and business. And we're very, very privileged to have Dr. Ishwar Puri on today. Dr. Ishwar Puri is the Dean of Engineering at McMaster University, where I graduated from and, and Damien graduated from as well. He's had an amazing career spanning academia, startups, and some hardcore engineering research. And not only is, the dean, is he the Dean of Eng at Mac, he's even amongst the top 5% most cited scientists worldwide on Google Scholar. So, you know, a ton of accolades to his name. Uh, he's had a very, very long and widespreading career. Our combo today will go over sort of his career path, his thoughts on mentorship and some student crowdsource questions as well, because they, they submitted some on Instagram. So yeah, without further ado, let's get started. You are now listening to the Next Iteration Podcast with your hosts, Fuad and Damien. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Well, thank you very much for having me here. Excited. It's, it's our pleasure, honestly. And so for a man that has accomplished so much in his life, and I like asking this of people who have just done a bunch of stuff in their life, because it's, it's interesting to see what they tease out as being the most valuable, but what among this pantheon of your accomplishments are you most proud of? So I think that's a difficult question to answer, right? I think that when when you reflect on your life, um, you know that you've done some good things, but at the same time, you're fully focused on the future. That's what drives us. Mm -hmm. So uh, compared to what I think I should do, what I've accomplished doesn't seem as significant. Mm-hmm. So that's what uh, really drives me. I think if you ask me to reflect upon certain things in the recent past, I think moving the needle on how we educate students has been uh, uh, has been a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, moving the needle on innovation has been another accomplishment. And... Uh, I would say that, you know, when I talk about accomplishments, moving the needle on engineering education or moving the needle on research, one person doesn't do it. You know, everything is done by teams. So there are are lots of efforts, I think, that should be recognized. Unfortunately, when we write these stories, we write these stories based on exceptionalism. And that exceptionalism is that of an individual the individual came in, they harnessed some creative energies, they did this, they led this, and often forgotten are the people who actually helped do the work. So another way to answer your question, so I'm answering it in three ways. And one is what I've done doesn't seem enough. Mm-hmm. And number two is, you know, I think I've moved the needle or helped move the needle on education, on research. But a third way I would answer it is that I'm very proud of the teams I've put together because it's the collective work of all these individuals that has brought me to this juncture. And, you know, Faud mentioned that uh, uh, I'm ranked in some lists amongst the top two scientists, uh, top 2% of scientists in the world. So thank you very much for that plug. But you have to remember <laughs> that it's my research group that helped me bring it here. And it's Mm -hmm. generations, uh, in a university, a generation is equal to four years or five years or six years, right? It's generations of students who went through my lab, they did the original research. 
and taught me things. So what am I really proud of is that I've allowed people to teach me so that I can become better. I think mm-hmm. that's one way of answering it. That's a beautiful way of putting it. And I think something that Damien and I have noticed amongst all high-performing individuals is that you need to have that humility because you know to actually accomplish anything in your life, you need to be able to work in a team. You need to be able to work with different people. And it's just so refreshing to hear that from you. And you expected nothing less. So thank you for that amazing answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I'm curious about you know, on the note of teams is how do you form good teams? Like, what do you look for in a team when you're, when you're constructing your team at, you know, McMaster and a research group, whatever it is at your startup, which we'll talk about later. Uh, what do you look for in a team? So I think several things. The first thing is that I ascribe to the concept of a team of rivals. Um, you know, when you interview for a job or you have a job, there were many who interviewed for the same job, but they didn't get the job. You got it. But you got it because the people who were searching, the organization, the institution thought that you had something that the others didn't have. And very often, you know, that's some kind of an X factor. That X factor is only good for that moment in time. You know, an organization needs different kinds of leaders at different junctures in its evolution. So, You know, uh, for instance, I could be competitive for a job today, but with the same skill set, I may not be competitive for a job at another organization, uh, you know, next week or next month. So the uh, issue of strategic alignment is very important. That means that in every organization, there are people who could do your job, but they didn't get the job simply because you were viewed as having some kind of an X factor. And those are the rivals, right? You can either freeze them out or you can collaborate with them. And if you collaborate with them and bring them into your team, you have to be prepared to be humble because they come in as your equals because you know, after all, they aspire to the job and they had aspirations for it. And, and, and when you put a team of rivals together, they were rivals before, your job really is to cement the team so that the rivalry goes away and the collaboration comes out. And so, so I, I would say, you know, taking very strong individuals who can speak truth to power is very important for me. After all, I'd like my team members to tell me, hey, you're messing up. Uh, Damien asked me to drop an F-bomb, you know, you can, uh, you, you can put in a substitute for messing up. You'd rather, you know, you'd rather have a team member do that rather than do something really stupid. And the world tells you, oh, man, you really bleeped up, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> we can so, the bleep. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, the team of rivals is one approach. The second thing that I think you have to do is have a flat leadership structure. Many people want to be like top boss. So if you've gone to meetings in organizations, some people run meetings in a call and response kind of a way. You know, there's a, there's a chair running the meeting. Somebody makes a comment. The chair has to make another comment, right? Uh, then somebody else makes a comment. The chair has to make another comment. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is remove yourself with humility and just let people have a conversation and, and, and trust people. Don't micromanage them. 
Because after all, if they're your team members, you just got to trust them. You know, once in a while they drop the ball and then you'll say, hey, you know, that wasn't cool. But mostly they'll realize they dropped the ball and they'll just come back and say, I'm sorry, I dropped the ball. And that's fine. So I think micromanagement is something that's not useful, Mm -hmm. particularly with high performers. And I would leave you with saying that uh, the teams should feel like they're part of a coalition. Um, When I came in, I thought that McMaster Engineering was ripe for change. And so, you know, if you think about change management, you have to put together a guiding coalition that has to really understand your vision. So articulating your vision, and they have to be able to tell you where to get the easy win. You know, if you want to go to Mars today, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I know people are thinking about traveling to Mars, or let's say, well, that may be feasible, well, at least in the movies it was. I think I saw a movie with uh, somebody on Mars uh, not so long ago. <laughs> Let's say if you want to go to yeah. Saturn, right? That's too far away. So maybe you go for the moonshot first, then you go to Mars, and then you say, okay, well, from there I'm going to go to Saturn. So having a team that helps you establish those easy first wins when you mm-hmm. have a long journey for uh, change, mm-hmm. I think that's also important. Yeah, so... Correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Burry, but I think one aspect of what I heard in your answer is it's not always about making the right choice. It's about making a choice and making it right. Right. Because like with these people that you're bringing onto the teams, like they're not always going to be stellar as soon as they come on or, you know, there might be some rocky uh, patches of road along the way. But more often than not, if especially as a leader, you're willing to show these individuals that you care about them that you're willing to help nurture them, that you're willing to help, you know, upskill them, level them up, they will go above and beyond for you. Because like you said, like oftentimes like it feels so competitive, like you're just trying to get an edge in here. People are always trying to get a leg on you. Like it's a very predatory world to be in. So it's as sad as it is, it, it feels like it's rare to have a leader that sees you and cares about you. You know, you often feel like just another number or another employee number. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think you're completely right. Um, what I would say is, you know, there's this uh, analogy that's used in the management literature that before you drive the bus, you have to have the right people in the right seats before you start mm-hmm. driving the bus, right? So it's putting the right people in the right seats, knowing how you can mentor them. But I will say that there are... Uh, there are uh, uh, you know, organizations that are notorious for not caring for people, right? Yeah. And there are organizations that are uh, lauded for caring for people. And sometimes the ones that are notorious for not caring for people do really well. You know, there's a lot of literature about Amazon and about Walmart, but they seem to be like really, really thriving in this yeah. pandemic world, right? So, so I would say that uh, the goal is not only success, but the goal is also making the world a better place, right? We have to have Mm. core values. So, I mean, I think that, you know, when I came to McMaster Engineering, it was already a good place. It had a good culture, good DNA. My focus was not only in making it a better place, And I think you could sort of extrapolate that to any institution or organization. It's not only making the organization more competitive, more reputable, have more revenue, be more lauded, but it's also 
maintaining or improving the culture of buy-in. I mean, our world is like very conflicted right now. I mean, if you think about Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Indigenous Affairs, Asian hate, right? You know, Mm -hmm. it looks like we are fractionating into whether we are white or brown or Asian or black, you know, we are fractionating by gender and we are fractionating by sexual orientation and gender identity and so on. I think that it's very important to have a place that uh, it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is or what your gender identity is, that people have a sense of belonging. And you know that's hard to do, that's hard to do. Um, within organizations, we, have, we are a microcosm of society, right? We have the same problems that society, we, we face the same problems that society has Uh, We have similar histories to the rest of society, but all we can do as leaders is try to make our organizations better so that the reflection of our organization is slightly better or much better than the reflection of society. Knowing that perfection will take time and that others will come in and do an even better job in moving the organization forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I know you're very much a man of community. And I say that because, you know, like Fawad's in engineering, but I come from a background in science. And I mean, to be fair, I do have a lot of engineering friends, but I've <laughs> seen way more of you than I have of my own dean. Like, I don't even know who the dean <laughs> of science was. So kudos to you for being a man of um, community, because even for some of the other initiatives, some of my engineering friends have pursued within the school, you were always there uh, at some point, you know, supporting them. Uh, throwing some words of encouragement out. So on behalf of all of them, thank you for the work that you've done. Well, thanks for the compliment. I will tell you, the Dean of Science is a, is a, is a very nice person. I'm sure and... they are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe I'm just more photogenic. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> so, you do have but... a face of the camera. Exactly. Especially <laughs> well, with the, the Dean of Science is, is, is top notch as well. Mm-hmm. I just wanted Amazing. to shift the conversation a bit to academia because obviously you're someone who has spent a ton of time in uh, in that world and I guess to perhaps to start with um, you know it's considering what you were saying about building a more diverse world getting everybody a seat at the table academia is one of those things that is home to the smartest people in the world right full of people coming from different walks of life and it seems like right now the market is very saturated with PhDs and not enough tenured, tenured positions to go around. How were you able to distinguish yourself within this world, right? And like, what advice would you perhaps give to some of the uh, future hopeful academics that are listening to this? I think that PhD employment is more of a problem in other areas than it is in engineering. So... Mm-hmm. Only about less than 10% of our PhD graduates actually go into academia. 90% go into the private or public sector. Most will go into the private sector, right? Mm -hmm. So for instance, um, you know, uh, my last graduate uh, who was an engineering physics bachelor's and master's student, she did her PhD with me. Uh, she did a co-op with Apple in Cupertino and was immediately hired, actually even before she defended her thesis. Um, I have a student who's a PhD student 
who's going to defend her thesis next month, early July, I think first week of June. And she's doing a co-op with uh, Public Health Ontario, and it looks like they'll probably give her a job. So what I'm saying is that um, particularly, and I would say, uh, Damien, that might also apply to the sciences, since you're a science graduate, right? Um, what we try to do in a PhD is not make clones of ourselves. It's very important. I'm sorry. Some research groups will make clones of themselves. What mm -hmm. I try to do and many others do is not make clones of ourselves uh, so that our students have skills, right? And the skills that they have are transferable. Mm -hmm. They are creative thinkers. Uh, they show that they're willing to stay with a problem for about three, four years and make like a profound original contribution to solving it. Who wouldn't want somebody like that, right? They've shown that they have the grit. They've shown that they have the smarts. Now, now I know that when PhDs come out of a group, their primary mentors are really uh, their, uh, their advisors or supervisors. So they want to be like them saying, hey, why can't I be an assistant professor? I would tell you that in my research group, the bulk of the individuals actually want to go into the private sector or they want to launch their own startups. So launching your own startup is scary because you need a safety net, but mm -hmm. you know, going into the private sector is not that difficult. So what did I want to do? I always wanted to be a professor because I wanted to have the space to pursue my creativity because as a faculty member, um, you can get grants, you can discover things in your lab, and that's what excited me. Um, I found I had a talent for it. I had a very hard time landing my first job. Uh, you know, I got like, I would say almost 75 or 80 declinations before I got my first position. Wow. Um, you know, I, I, I applied over maybe three years. I was a postdoc. And, mm -hmm. and as a senior PhD student, mm -hmm. you know, you can think about it, 25 declinations a year, so like two a month. I mean, that can be very dispiriting. You need a support group. I mean, you know, my wife, mm -hmm. uh, she was originally my girlfriend and then my fiance and then my wife. I mean, she was very mm -hmm. supportive and she's the best thing that's happened to me. And so I think you need a support group in your life. You know, we, mm -hmm. we have this myth that we do these things by ourselves. We are all heroes, but you need a supportive family. Not all people have a supportive family. You need a supportive companion. Not all people have a supportive companion. You need supportive friends. And it was difficult. You know, my friends who went into the private sector, you know, I, I was driving this Honda Civic at that time, which was a beat up uh, uh, used car. And some of my friends were driving, you know, um, the Mazda Miata had just come out and they were sort oh of going around. Oh my God, oh, that's beauty. Those pop-up headlights. Oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself, right? So, uh, and, and then, you know, they had the cars and you were living in, a, in, an, in, in this rental apartment, you know, walking up the stairs and it was kind of dingy and people had their homes in a backyard, right? Yeah. So, uh, so it, it was, and, and the first few years of a professor's life are very difficult because you have to work towards something called tenure. So you need a support system. And I think that the support system I had was a good one. Mm -hmm. And I, I was also an immigrant, right? So, uh, 
And as an immigrant, you know, you're hungry because you have no social net, right? I mean, uh, uh, I mean, my parents weren't with me. They were in India. And, and so, so I think it's a confluence of things. I think, um, um, you know, native born people are also hungry. I mean, I don't want us to get into that whole fragmentation debate. You asked me about myself. I was an immigrant, I was hungry. I had a chip on my shoulder. Um, you know, this is many years ago. Um, I lived in a basically white society, but I was not a white person. And so there was this whole thing like, you know, damn it, I'm going to work harder and I'm going to show everybody that I'm as smart, if not smarter, and I'll be successful. So, so it's, it's a lot of internal drive. It's some external uh, inputs. I think all of us are smart, right? I mean, the, there are so many things that lead to success. And one of the things that leads to success is serendipity, that somebody believes in you. So I told you, my wife believed in me. Right, she still does. We've been together for more than thirty years, Amazing. and and I hope it goes for another thirty-five, if not more. Um, but you know, I had mentors who believed in me. They thought, "Wow, this fellow is really smart." You know, we need to promote him. We need to champion him. So I would say, you ask for advice, right? Have a supportive network. Believe in yourself. Have some internal drive. Network with people, the kind of people who are not going to put you down because you have a funny accent or because you know you look different you know because you're not blonde or brunette or you know whatever uh, you don't feel fit somebody's phenotype of what handsome is and and I, and I think those champions in the long term are really going to help you uh, they're really they're really 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 going to help you so Mm -hmm. um, another thing which is important, I would say here is the pay it forward. I've been so fortunate. People have really Absolutely. helped me. People have really helped mm -hmm. me advance in my career. And I would say the advice I give to others is look out for people who want to pay it forward. And then when you succeed, pay it forward mm -hmm. by adopting, championing other people because somebody did it for you. Amazing. I think you, you touched on so many points. First off, the point about, you know, the immigrant story and having the chip on your shoulder. I think there was a study done recently that showed out of the billion dollar unicorn companies in the U.S., billion dollar startups, um, I think 70 or 80 percent of them were either started by an immigrant or the child of an immigrant, which is insane. Right. Because uh, I think, you know, not to get into the debate whether someone works harder or not. Right. We don't want to get into fractionalizing things here. But I think that having that mentality of, of wanting to work hard, having that chip on your shoulder, having something to prove really, really inspires you and, and can take you through some of those darkest moments and grittiest moments. Um, so yeah, really, really, yeah. really resonated with that. You know, yeah. my, my kids always tell me how messed up they are because you're an immigrant, an immigrant's children, you know, <laughs> how much insecurity. I'm the child of immigrants as well. Them. So <laughs> can definitely emphasize with them. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, um, so the second part uh, of your question too, about mentorship, I think that fascinates me. Mentorship has been so important in my career. You know, I'm only 22, just starting it out, but it's already been so impactful in my career. Uh, and we actually got a lot of questions on this, um, you know, from, from sort of uh, the Instagram community. So one thing I wanted to ask you is uh, who helped guide a young Dr. Puri? Who were your mentors and how did you find them? And the second part of that question is how should, you know, young engineers in, in this day and age find those mentors? I think that 
people are eager to be mentors. Um, you know, there are some pros and cons. Um, the pros are that uh, you, so mentoring comes not only that you walk up to someone and say, hey, will you be my mentor? Mm -hmm. Mentoring also comes from chemistry, right? I mean, if two people are a good fit uh, on paper as mentor and mentee, uh, they may not be a good fit based on personal chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that personal chemistry is very important. I think asking people saying, hey, you know, uh, can I meet with you from time to time because I want to learn from you is a good thing. I think mm -hmm. observing people is very good. That's called experiential learning. I was surrounded mm -hmm. by very successful people all, all through my career. And I would say even getting out of your bubble uh, you know, the mentors I have, you, I have mentors today and not, you know, some at McMaster, but many of them are outside. They are across the world. So getting out of your bubble and having a wide variety of mentors whom you meet during the course of your work um, or, or uh, uh, during the course of your life, I think that's, uh, that's very important. What I will say is that it's important not to have mentors who are competitive with you because they will then uh, be very harsh and might bring you down, right? So it's very, very important to have mentors who pick you up. They give you very sound advice. They tell you how it is, but they don't sort of grind you down. And, 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 and I'd say that that choice, uh, that choice is very important. Um, I, I will also say that uh, life is about experiential learning. So some mentors work and some don't. And I think people just have to go into it headlong and find out, you know, what kind of personality is a good fit for them, what kind of personality is not. If you don't try it, you won't find out. But um, find somebody who has good core values, you know, who's not going to harass you uh, either emotionally or sexually, you know, and, and, uh, and, and they'll be, you know, a true guide by the side uh, during your career. And I've been very fortunate to have people. With mentoring also, you have to be humble, right? Because sometimes a mentor will say something and you'll get in an argument with them. Well, if you, they're giving you free advice, it's worth what it is. If you don't like it, walk away. There's, there's no point sort of getting into an argument uh, over whether that's good advice or not good advice. You don't have to take it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So who, who are some of the mentors that you still go to for advice th these days? Oh, I believe in 360 degree mentoring, Paul, in the sense that there are those above me who mentor me. So these would be people who have much more experience than me. Uh, there are people on the side who have similar experience to me with whom I can, um, uh, you know, I can exchange ideas, for instance. Uh, so one thing, you know, which the Ontario deans do is that we have a social every other week uh, on, because Zoom makes it very easy. Mm -hmm. where everybody brings a local beer and then you show it on, on these little Zoom tiles and you drink oh, beer and you discuss no your issues, right? So it's you guys are party amazing. animals. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, absolutely. absolutely. You guys are getting wild. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> engineering beans are wild <laughs> oh i can't imagine oh man we have to do a part two episode where we go through those dirty stories <laughs> and, and so that's that's like 180 degree mentoring on the side and then there are people who work for you they've mm. been awesome mentors to me you know they've taught me so much and, and so i think that this 360 degree mentoring has been very important uh i won't name them because you know if i miss out someone then the other person will say hey I thought I was a mentor for sure and, and, and so so I think be humble and have 360 degree mentoring I mean I'm sure if I hung out with you folks and we went to a cafe had a coffee or a libation that was a little stronger I'd learn something right <laughs> you, you you teach me something be open to learning um, simply because there's an experience divide between us we are in different sectors different stages of life different ages doesn't mean that I can't learn from you. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, so I'd say that 360 degree mentoring is very, very important to me. So it sounds like we're just one coffee chat away from starting a startup together. That's what I'm yeah. All right. You <laughs> know what? <laughs> That'd be a dream come true. <laughs> Amazing. I absolutely have to. Okay. So I have a bit of a weird question for you now, just because I see you reflecting on your life um, so far. And this question, it's it's something that I've been thinking about recently, just because, you know, like both Juan and I, like obviously still being very young, you know, we're still at a stage in our life where, you know, sometimes I'm sure you've had this too when you were younger. And this is why I'm asking, but we have these moments where you'll be laying in your bed late at night, you know, your head is just in the clouds. You're thinking about life. What's to come? What does the future hold for you? What are you going to accomplish? What are you going to do? Are you going to make your parents proud? Are you going to make yourself proud? And it's this mix of excitement, a little bit of nervousness because of what's to come and the uncertainty surrounding it. What do you, do you have those moments still at oh, all? Yeah. And like, what do those, like, what do those moments look like? What goes through your heads and goes through your head? I mean, you know, the thing is that I told you I'm an immigrant and my parents were refugees, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in India, mm-hmm. uh, there was bitterness in the 1940s. And so uh, they gave me a sense of uh, insecurity. So that sense of insecurity was that you had to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I've been very mm-hmm. careful not to pass on that to my children. Although, you know, sometimes I find myself regressing when I'm in conversations with them. It leads to very interesting dinner conversations when everyone is home and uh, with people <laughs> getting upset and so right. on. Right. So I become better at it over the years. But I think that, you know, I have that insecurity even now. Am I successful enough, right? Mm. Um, When I was growing up in India, there were these two English words that I grew up in a Hindi-speaking and a Punjabi-speaking family. And there were these two words that uh, people used, English words they used. One was success and one was settle. You had to settle down. Mm. And, and, and you had to be successful. And you can interpret that in many different ways. So, you know, when I reflect, we're all creatures of our environment. So Damien, you're a creature of your environment and you had these environmental inputs. So there are probably keywords, right? Mm-hmm. And when I reflect on what's happened, I sometimes cringe at the choices I made. You know, I made some <laughs> bad choices. You know, and, and I get embarrassed personally thinking about them and I try to block them out of my mind. You know, I, oh, gee, I shouldn't have done that. 
And some of the things, you know, the episodes that sometimes come to me are from like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, right? Before you were born. So, uh, so, so I think we carry baggage. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes when I think of the road ahead, I have aspirations and I sort of get a little despondent, like, you know, what's the road to those aspirations? How can I close the deal? Mm-hmm. And I haven't learned it, but if I had to give myself advice, I would say be patient. You know, that's, you know, our greatest uh, strength is also our greatest weakness. Uh, my greatest strength is that I'm impatient. I'd like, I want change. I want things to happen now. And that's also my greatest weakness because it makes me insecure. It makes me rush things sometimes, you know, there are times of deliberation and there are times of uh, building. And, 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 and so, so I would say, you know, that uh, when I look to the future and project the future, I look at a runway and, 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 and I feel sometimes I'm, you know, not even out of the gate. I'm not even taxiing down the runway because, you know, you want to be up at the end of the runway and flying. I mean, that's when accomplishment is. So you're not alone in having these thoughts. I mean, I have these thoughts and, uh, uh, you know, you gave me a lot of praise, uh, both uh, Faud and you when you started out, but I can tell you that's not how I look at myself. Uh, you know, I measure myself against what I think I should be doing. And sometimes, you know, uh, when I'm with my wife, she'll bolster my spirits. But sometimes when I'm alone, I'm thinking, man, you know, what the heck have you been doing all this time? You know, you need to sort of step it up a little bit and, and, and amp it up. Mixed in with all this is luck, serendipity. So what you will see is that you have friends who by, who are as smart as you, or maybe not as smart as you, who are as hardworking as you, or maybe not as hardworking as, as you, but luck or chance has given them something that you don't have, right? Mm-hmm. And so luck is very important. I mean, some people, you know, they use luck to their advantage uh, and, and things just line up. So where I am today and where you will be, uh, both of you, has to do not only with your intrinsic capabilities, but it will do with the habits you create for yourself the network you have, the champions you have, and just sheer dumb luck. An opportunity will come by, you'll grab it. And some people will say, I don't know why you're doing that, you know, Uh, and you'll grab it. And then, you know, a year or two later, they'll say, wow, you know, that foul, that Damien, my God. They're yeah, like, we call oh. them we call them haters. That's what the <laughs> the kids these days are called haters. Yeah, yeah. There's always going to be haters around you for sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I love how you you at the beginning of this conversation you made the distinction between comparing yourself to your past achievements and projecting yourself. And I think we've done a good job of kind of going over your past achievements now. So now I want to pivot the conversation in, into the future and some of the goals you have. So uh, another crowdsource question I think that ties in really well with this. What goals do you have for Mac Eng in the upcoming years? I think Mac Eng has come a long way. If you've looked at its reputation, you know, it's now ranked uh, fifth by program reputation in Canada. I mean, I would certainly like it to be top three. 
Uh, our reputation in the world is in, in improving, but reputation is one thing and outcomes are one thing. I just want superb outcomes for our students. So we recently pivoted from uh, just traditional teaching and learning. You know, traditional teaching and learning is very industrial scale learning. You bring in a cohort of a thousand students, you put them on a conveyor belt, you have them take this class, that class. Then there are these quality control inspectors who say, okay, this person can go ahead, this person can't. You throw the others away into uh, you know, a, a recycling bin, they can come back or they can leave uh, depending on the nature. And then that cohort goes on to second year, same thing happens. And at the end of four years or five years, you put the cohort into a box, you tie a ribbon and say, okay, this is a quality product, right? I mean, that's a very industrial way of doing things. Uh, I'm, I'm obviously being very harsh when I, uh, when I look at the education process, but, but I think sometimes you have to use a harsh metaphor in order to drive change. We use very high stakes assessments, right? Uh, oh, you got a 50, you got a 70, you know, you can go ahead, you can't. Um, and, and really, I think we should focus not on assessments, but on learning. So one of the arguments I keep having with uh, faculty members and with others is actually, I had one even with my own kids the other night. Uh, you know, this was one of ours, um, our routine controversial discussions around the dinner table. When, whenever we can get together. We have very high stakes assessments. Now, so if somebody fails a test, you know, uh, is the objective to say you failed the test or is the objective that you should have learned? If you should have learned, why don't we give them another chance, right? Because, I mean, I think of students as being vessels and you have to fill the vessel, right? An assessment tells you that the vessel is not Full. assessments are notorious, high stakes assessments are notoriously inaccurate. I mean, somebody may be in a bad mood, they may not have slept well, they may be nervous, they didn't do well on an assignment or on a homework or, or on a quiz or a, or a midterm or a final, right? Uh, so I, I think that what I want to do is I want to move the needle on that. And I want to make sure that we assess students so, and we give them multiple chances to learn. Now, if somebody's lazy, and if somebody really is incapable of learning, then of course you leave them behind. But I think that uh, that that you focus on learning. We've been doing that. So when I came, you know, only about eight out of ten students, less than eight out of ten students, made it from first year engineering to second year engineering. Can you believe that? So, oh, wow. so yeah, one, out of, uh, one out of one out of five did not make it to second year. Actually, it was, mm. it was more than that. Last year, 991 out of 1,000 students made it from first to second year. Amazing. So previously, it was yeah. less than 800 out of 1,000, right? Yeah. It was, it was 770 or something. But last year, 991 students made it into second year. Right, so what so changed there? Sorry, what changed there? I'm just curious because like it's, so the it's change remarkable. is that you need a scaffold for students to uh, to to do better. You need professors to be more involved in students' education. You need academic advisors, sufficient number of academic advisors, 
where the academic advisors are not just bureaucrats telling you, yeah, you can take this, you can't take this, but they can actually sit down with you and solve your problems, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't learn this very well. Well, maybe we can uh, put you in touch with a tutor or something. Um, our students, the McMaster Engineering Society, started a tutoring program for students where uh, the, I think the students put in five bucks and the McMaster Engineering Society put in 10 bucks per hour for the tutoring. So it was a low cost tutoring program. So it supports like that, mm. you know, professors' office hours. Uh, we changed the first year curriculum in engineering. And previously we had about 70 odd TAs. We, we, we've almost doubled that to 140 TAs. So students have access to more TAs, right? So I think putting scaffolding around students, you know, and by scaffolding, what I mean is that if you have a set of stairs, some students are just going to run up. Imagine stairs without any guides on the side, right? Without any handrails on the side. Some students are going to go right up the middle and they're going to shoot up and they're going to reach the roof. But there are others who are going to fall off to the side and they may be in jeopardy. So we've got to put those guardrails to help those students who are not doing well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we did in many different ways. And, and I think that if I had one aspiration, it would be to continue that. It would be to deepen learning. You know, the tagline of the Faculty of Engineering says nothing about engineering. It says that we want to educate citizen scholars who want to change the world. So we want to educate citizens who are scholars who want to change the world, who want to transform the world. It says nothing about engineering. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is that today, only about 25 or 30% of engineering students actually become engineers. They go on to do other things with their lives, right? So you want them to be citizens. They have to understand their place in society. They have to be scholars. They have to be curious about the world and they they have to want to transform the world. I mean, we should have a calling, right? We should have a calling. My generation and other generations have left a huge debt for you folks, for Damien, you, Fouth, and all your Instagram followers. I mean, think about climate change, right? Mm-hmm. Think about the pandemic. It would not have happened if we didn't have mass deforestation, if we didn't have urban overcrowding. Mm-hmm. Things would have been very, very different. You know, so a lot of these problems are intrinsically tied together. We have a refugee crisis in the world today, right? Uh, there are people who want to migrate from the have-not countries to the have countries, which is setting up, let's say, certainly in Europe. And it'll certainly, and, and we saw that play out over the last few years in the United States, and it might come to Canada, you know, a certain amount of aversion to immigrants, uh, in some cases, even hatred, uh, you know. So, uh, you know, I talked about fractionation. That's the debt, the check we've left for you, which you're the mortgage we've left for you. And you have to find a way out of it, which means that it's my responsibility, our responsibility to educate citizen scholars who will transform the world. Yeah, I, uh, it reminds me of this quote. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. Yeah, And I think that's what it should really be. Right? It's not about dumping knowledge into a student because yeah. what happens is usually when you throw assessments in there, those pails usually have holes in the bottom. And then after the assessment, all the water is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's 
like Fwad and I have talked about this before, but I mean, it's a little weird talking about this because you're here, but, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the like for a lot of students these days, most of the real value that we're getting out of our programs don't come from the actual classes themselves, rather than the interactions that we have with the students and the experiences we gain through like co-op programs, right? And for many of us, and like Fwad's a humble guy, so he would never brag about himself like this, but he does a remarkable job of just self-guided learning. Like he goes out of his way to educate himself on the things that he cares about. And, right, man. <laughs> <laughs> and again, like super humble guy. So he wouldn't say, so I just want to brag about him for a second. And I just like, how do we get that into, like, how do we get that back into schools? You know, and we're seeing today these little microcosms of education popping up, right? Like Google uh, came up with their own little academy. I don't know if it's already out yet or what. Um, I don't know if you know about that, if uh, you know about that one, but yeah, like they're uh, having classes where you don't have to get an academic and university degree. You can just do those classes and then you can be qualified to do, uh, to join any of their, uh, their companies or, and even things like Elon Musk coming out of SpaceX, having little uh, classes for his, uh, for his children and for children of other employees. And they're providing that to others, other people around the world now too, which is like, incredible, right? I like, I would love to have my kid educated by people like that. Like, that sounds amazing. Do you think that we're going to see more of this decentralization of education going forward? Or do you think that these legacy institutions will persist over time? So I'm going to answer your question, but first, if you allow me, I'll take you down a different path. Let's right. go. Let's do it. So, so I'm going to flip the script and I'm going to ask both of you a question. So think about your time at McMaster and you're only allowed to talk about one seminal experience that shaped you. So just one. So, so I'll pose that question to both of you and uh, you know, whoever wants to go first. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta pick second place, man. <laughs> uh, okay, while Damien's thinking, I can I can probably go first. So you asked one seminal experience throughout my time at university that that completely changed. You can only you know, select I, one. One, ooh, one. I think, I think it would have to be my first day at Tesla when I worked there. Your first uh, day that, at Tesla, okay? Yeah, absolutely okay, changed. Good, changed my life. So, Damien, what about you? Um, for me, I think one of my favorite experiences, uh, would have to be, (laughs) I'm sorry, let me collect myself. Um, I was part of, um, a student led initiative called McMaster energy week. Um, yeah. And that that. was, yeah, that was a fantastic experience. Um, I got really close with the uh, other individuals that were part of that team, uh, and it's just that experience of working with some with other people to build something, right? That camaraderie that comes out of it. Um, mm-hmm. Even like Delta hacks. Like again, I come from science. Yeah. I just I love that they keep it open to non technical folks as well to introduce that culture of diversity. I found a team of um, other technologists who were so kind to let this complete novice join them, and I had an amazing time. We spent stayed up for thirty six hours. I stank by the end of it, right. but that sense of camaraderie, again, that you get through it, it's such a beautiful thing. And I think that's, that was my favorite part. So, so Damien talked about two experiences, oh, sorry, sorry, Energy sorry. Week and, uh, and, and, and Delta, Delta Hacks. Hacks. So yeah. Fouth, 
it's it's only fair that uh, you talk about two. So Tesla was for your first day at Tesla was one. First day at Tesla was one, and then I think the other was so me and and two of my other friends we worked on a startup uh, in second year over the summer that was incubated at the Forge. It was called Pickup. Uh, and the startup didn't end up going anywhere, you know, unfortunately, we, <laughs> that's a long story. I'll share it on the podcast sometime. But uh, I think what stood out to me with that experience was, I remember there was this one night, it was like 3 a.m. when we were in Hatch and we had like, you know, stayed in Hatch way past closing. I don't know if I want to say this either <laughs> on the podcast. It was way past Hatch was closed. All the doors were locked. We like propped open one of the doors and just were studying in this one study room until like 3 or 4 a.m. And it was the same, same kind of concept, like the commodity, like, you yeah. know, we're, we're up at 3, 4 a.m. on a summer night, beautiful night. We could be doing anything. And then we're here working on the startup. So that was, that was probably one so, of the more So the, the, the road I'm going to take you on is, is different before I answer Damien's question. You know, when mm-hmm. I came to Mac, I, somebody gave me a book. Uh, he, was the, um, uh, he was the director of the McPherson Institute. It was called the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at that time. And he gave me this book by a professor at Harvard, Richard Light. And the name of the book is Getting the Most Out of College. You know, in the United States, college and university are sometimes synonymous, right? And what Dr. Light did was, um, Dick Light, uh, what he did was um, he interviewed alumni at Harvard. And and I think that this study went to other universities as, as, as well. And they asked this question, what was your one seminal experience? Very few, if any, people talked about that one class that they had or, uh, you know, the one subject that really enthralled them. You know, uh, almost all of the people just talked about an experience outside of class. So you've done exactly that. So getting the most out of uh, university is not just what happens in class, but it's also what happens out of class. And that's been a big focus for me is strengthening clubs and teams. You talked about Delta Hacks, McMaster Energy, uh, uh, we, yeah. uh, you know, uh, as Dean, I support those with real cash. Mm-hmm. The Hack Center, we, you know, we support that with real cash. I mean, we, we, uh, we partnered, we raised money and so on. So out of class activities are very important. And, uh, you know, if, if students are interested in success in a bricks and mortar university, it's learning from the peers, that camaraderie, making mistakes, picking yourself. You know, you said, well, you had pickup, which was a startup, which didn't go anywhere. Folks. But the point is, you probably learned so much, right? Absolutely. You learned that you have to fail fast. You learned why you failed and you picked yourself up. And that's going to be like very, very useful for you for the rest of your life. Same thing with Delta Hacks, 36 hours to solve a problem. You know, those sorts of sprints are not what we do in, in classes, right? It's three mm-hmm. hours. You go to a lecture, you're off. Then there's another lecture next week. And then it's interspersed with other lectures, you know, and, and by week 10, sometimes you forget what was done in week one. But you do a 36-hour yep. sprint, I bet you remember what you did. Yep. Right? So yep. out-of-class activities are very important. Now, let me come back to what you were talking about. I think that the, if bricks and mortar universities do not change, they're going to be in trouble. And mm-hmm. uh, so we've launched something called the Micro-Credential Academy, which is like the Google example that you were giving. And my ambition is to give anywhere in the world, 
a McMaster engineering education at any time. And that means that we not only have to focus on students. So you were students, you came to campus and you learned on campus, but you also got other experiences on campus, right? And we had supports uh, like we had the career and co-op placement office, which sent Fouts to Tesla. Uh, we now actually have a whole network of uh, uh, alumni at Tesla who help our students when they come and so on. Um, and, and we didn't have that. I remember going to Silicon Valley with students and uh, the Tesla relationship came out of that. So, so I think giving students educational experiences and out of class experiences is important, but we also have to think of learners around the world who may not get a McMaster engineering degree, but they may wish to learn. So, uh, mm -hmm. so we, we are launching this micro-credential program called McMaster Access, which gives anywhere, any, anyone anywhere in the world access to McMaster engineering education. It'll be on three levels. Level one will be free. It'll just be about fundamentals. So you said FAO, there's a self-oriented learner, any learner in the world, they log on, it's free content, you digest it, uh, you know, you give yourself an assessment. Uh, so, you know, nowadays I'm learning French on Duolingo. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm about 39% into the course, yeah. you know. At the end of it, uh, will I be fluent in French? Probably not, but the point is it occupies my time and I'll be an advanced beginner and mm -hmm. I could at least make out French conversation and I'll be able to read simple French, right? Mm -hmm. So this is what it will do in, a, in an engineering context for learners around the world. L2 is where you would have to pay uh, a tuition, but it won't be the classical 12.4 week course. It'll be small modules. There'll be three hours, four hours. And you know, you do these modules, you learn about something, you can stack up those modules. And if you have enough modules, you'll get a certificate of some sort. And that will give you fluency and literacy in the subject, right? The first is just introduction, right? It gives you some idea of a subject. The second is fluency and literacy. And L3 is that if, you want to come to our campus and have the same experiences that the both of you had, then you can come and that's mastery. So the bricks and mortar university, which will be at McMaster and McMaster engineering will be the bricks and mortar engineering school, will get these learners and give them mastery. So we have to realize that in the future, not everybody wants mastery, right? Like Faud has, or you have. You may want fluency and literacy in a lot of subjects, but you may only want mastery in a few subjects. It's like deconstructing the degree. You know, um, I don't mm -hmm. know if you're uh, familiar with molecular gastronomy. You know, there are these chefs who will deconstruct a meal, uh, you know, from a very molecular point of view. And then, uh, you know, a taco isn't really a taco. Or, you know, a burger isn't really a burger, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so the degree won't be a degree. I want to deconstruct the degree. I want to disrupt degree programs. I think there's lots of barriers in the way. There'll be lots of skeptics. When we moved McMaster Engineering to project-based learning a few years ago, people told me I was crazy. They said students won't come. You know, this year, I'm already getting nasty grams from parents who say, you know, my child was the most brilliant child at their school, but they didn't get in because the declination letters are going out. 
you know, our cutoffs, for instance, in computer science this year of the order of 95, 96%. I mean, it's crazy. So what mm-hmm. we've done in the pivot, this move towards challenge-based learning and project-based learning has actually attracted students, you know, who are very tired of that, uh, of that old style information dump in a lecture, right? So why does this have me worried? This has me worried because marks aren't everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've moved to a supplementary uh, application to get into McMaster Engineering. But even mm-hmm. then, I fear from, for somebody, I mean, what's the difference between 89.9% marks and 90% marks or 92.9 and 93% marks? Mm-hmm. I want to give access to everybody who can come to McMaster. And I think that these micro-credentials, taking these short modules and proving yourself might be a way for some people a path into mm-hmm. McMaster. Mm-hmm. We'll see. You know, always it's like with startups. Think of me as somebody who's got a lot of startups and in educational innovation. If I fail, I want to fail fast and move out of it and pivot to something else. Something else. You know, uh, I have the same learnings as Faul. He and I are equal when it comes to that learning. And and so, micro credentials. You asked me about the future of McMaster. We've got all these innovation projects going on. Think of it, you know, just like what X is to Google. You've heard of X? Yeah. You know, uh, I, you know I, I don't know what we should call it. Uh, X is taken. Maybe my initial P, my last name P. <laughs> so I've got all these P, P for project. You know, I've got P.MacEng, you know, mm-hmm. and, and P.MacEng is the innovation company with all these projects. We'll see if they succeed. Amazing. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, I had a thought on that completely flew by. <laughs> a- anyways, um, we are, we have one minute left in the call and we want to be respectful of your time, but we have one little last ritual that we ask everybody that we interview on the podcast. So I'll let Fouad go ahead and drop that question. Yes. And before we do that, I must say there's so many questions we didn't get to both from students and so and many that we wanted to find out, you know, about your startups, so Celerite, a ton of different things. So we'll have to schedule another interview. But sure. uh, before we before we go, the question is, if you could put any one message on a billboard that would reach millions, even billions of people, what message would you put on that billboard and why? I would say today I would put the message, have hope. Good times are upon us. Why? Because there's so much despondency in the world. People are losing hope. And when people lose hope, they become bitter. And when they become bitter, they start to fight amongst themselves rather than unite. So I would say that's my one message. Have hope. Good days are upon us. I'm very sure of that. Mm-hmm. Simply mm-hmm. because I think there are so many people committed to making the world a better place, making the world a more cheerful place. Look Absolutely. at the two of you. You didn't have to be here this afternoon. But you're doing this because it's a passion, because you feel that you're doing something that's important, that will move the needle. Mm -hmm. There are so many people like you around the world. And if you pass that message of hope and the message that we do something useful and make a difference, I think the world will be a better place. The future belongs to optimists, right? That's right. And both of you certainly are optimists. (laughs) Oh, I would like to think so. Um, yeah. So Dr. Puri, 
I apologies that we were so underdressed with the episode. We didn't know you were going to pull up looking <laughs> like this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, full suit. It's my mark that. of respect for you, Damien. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, man. I hope it is. Oh, no. Now like you're making us disrespectful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go put on my blazer one second. No, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but anyways yeah. thank you dr puri we really really appreciate your presence on the podcast we know that we're a couple minutes over time and, and you have another appointment to get to so we won't take too much of your time uh but yeah absolutely amazing and uh when this is done we'll share it hopefully mac and community gets to hear your voice because this is a, an amazing conversation mm-hmm. thank you very much i was very glad to be here and hope to see you again absolutely uh is there any last things you would like to shout out like just spot or spotlight on anywhere people can reach you anything like that I mean, the last thing that I'd like to shout out is um, I really appreciate what you're doing. And, uh, you know, there should be more people like you. I'm a big fan of oral history. There's too much stuff written. Mm -hmm. And sometimes oral histories where you just meander can have a profound impact. So keep doing what you're doing and keep sharing people's stories with people. Think Absolutely. yourselves not as podcast providers, but as providers of oral history of hope and messages of change. That's it. Let's go on our website. Thank you so much. <laughs> Purveyors of oral history. Not, we're not podcasters anymore. <laughs> no, we've transcended it. Okay, Dr. Puri, thank Take you care. so much. Uh, so long. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Think you got it? Nah, we're on the next iteration. <laughs>